Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today's conversation is taking place less than a week after the brutal murders in Atlanta, Georgia, and a day after another mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. In the case of Atlanta, it is noteworthy that six of the eight victims were women of Asian origin, leading many to assume that anti-Asian hatred was a key motive in the killings. The wider backdrop reveals that acts of anti-Asian bias and violence have risen dramatically in the past year, the year of the pandemic, which Donald Trump, we should recall, among others, persistently called the China flu. To help us make sense of this unsettling moment and the longer history out of which it emerges, we are pleased to welcome to then and now two distinguished UCLA scholars. Karen Umemoto is a professor of urban planning and Asian American studies, and the Helen and Morgan Chu director of the UCLA Asian American Studies Center. And David Yu is a professor of Asian American studies and history, as well as vice provost of the UCLA Institute for American Cultures. Welcome to you, Karen and David. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So let's begin with the historical roots of this phenomenon that we see before us today, David. Um, it's often said that race is a defining feature of society and politics in the United States. Now, that statement often focuses on the legacy of slavery and ongoing structural inequality faced by African Americans. Asian Americans are often forgotten or an afterthought in that narrative. So where do Asian Americans fit into the race puzzle of the United States? Well, I could probably talk about that question for a very long time, but I realized given the interest, in the interest of time, I want to just maybe look at three kind of different areas of how I would try to answer that question. The first is I think that Asian Americans can be framed in, in different ways, but I guess one that I think um, is helpful is the this notion of perpetual foreigners, Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners. And by that, I mean, I think the characterization of Asian Americans in terms of otherness that has been defined by, often often defined by exclusion. And by exclusion, we often think of um, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which makes sense. But I think more foundational than that is the Naturalization Act of 1790, which really becomes kind of the framework, which was, you know, in which naturalization is limited to, quote, free white persons and how that becomes um, a particular way that Asian exclusion unfolds around the concept of those who are ineligible for citizenship and how that becomes um, the basis for things like the alien land laws that, um, you know, that bar essentially Asians from land ownership, not only in California, those are the best known cases, but there are also cases in Oregon and Washington and also the Cable Act of 1922, which is where women lose their citizenship if they marry, um, you know, uh, non-U.S. 
men, which the act was really intended to actually restore white women's citizenship, but it left intact, for example, um, Asian women who overwhelmingly were marrying Asian immigrant men. They still lost their citizenship because it was really on this ineligibility for citizenship that it hinged. So I think that's this perpetual foreign foreigner um, kind of image as, as well as exclusion as one area. The other is I think the, the role that empire and war really play uh, in the history of Asian Americans. And I think if you look at the 20th century, for example, you really see the role that, um, that the Philippine American War World War II, um, the Korean War and Vietnam, these wars um, and the US involvement in them and how they really um, shape empire, uh, the American empire really at work in the 20th century has tremendous ramifications for um, so many um, Asian American groups. Um, and when you think about annexation and colonialism as well, when you think about places not only like Philippines, but Guam, Hawaii, Samoa, and other places. So that's kind of the second area. And then the final piece is really, I don't think it, I think a lot of the things that are um, the bias and the violence that's really directed towards Asian Americans is really not, I mean, there are some unique ways in which that takes shape and form, but they really are built upon um, this larger racial pattern and structure uh, that affects um, other uh, racialized groups in the United States. So for example, the foreign miners tax during the gold rush, which gets applied to Chinese Americans in a particular way, actually was first set up really for Mexicans, right? Or if you look at California's uh, People versus Hall, which makes um, Chinese testimony uh, inadmissible in the courts, that of course is building on um, certain earlier statutes that really disallow say Native American and African American testimony. So there are these ways in which I think that we can't really understand um, the role that race plays for Asian Americans without thinking about the larger racial structure. So I think I'll, I'll stop there. Good, well, that's, uh, that's extremely helpful. Um, and I wanna just get a better understanding of who is ironically enough included in that act of exclusion. And by that, I mean, what do we mean when we talk about Asian Americans, uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Um, how did that designation come about? Um, extending back into the uh, uh, 19th century, of course, we have a raft of acts of exclusion directed against Chinese. Um, but the category has expanded over the course of uh, the latter half of the 20th century, and we now have um, the entity known as Asian Americans. Um, how did that come about? And and what what is its significance um, in this history of the racialization of the other in America? Well, I think the, the term Asian American, and I'm gonna leave the Pacific Islander part of the term to Karen, uh, but the Asian American piece of it, I think really dates back to the, the late 1960s. And often the, the term is credited to um, a pioneering Asian American historian named Yuji Ichioka. And what's really um, interesting about Yuji's case is that he's a UCLA alum. Um, he was a history major as an undergrad. And for many years, he was a research associate um, with the um, UCLA Asian American Studies Center, which Karen directs. 
And so he did a lot of his research, um, you know, here at UCLA that was really pioneering, but he's generally credited as the person um, coining that term as a really a term of political solidarity uh, during the Asian American movement um, during the 1960s and as really a counter uh, to the term Oriental um, and the problems with that. But I do think that that term really was um, embedded in the larger civil rights, uh, yellow power and third world liberation movements. So there is a sense in which that term comes into being. Now that term, I mean, I would say that today the term, there are some people who would argue that the term has kind of outlived its usefulness because of all the ways in which it say privileges, say East Asian immigrants or East Asian Americans uh, versus other groups. And so there are these ways in which I think a composite term that was formed in, in a time of political solidarity um, in a particular time, um, how does it, how does it um, you know, bear over the course of that time right now, since we're some 50, 60 years removed from that period? Um, I still think that the political solidarity piece is important to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, and I wonder what the relation between that um, movement uh, of uh, of protest and um, and solidarity is, and what is perhaps the most infamous and ignominious example of anti-Asian bias at the structural governmental level, which is the incarceration of Japanese Americans during uh, the Second World War. So where does that um, um, extraordinarily important event fit into the arc of uh, bias and discrimination against Asian Americans. What role um, do you see it playing? Is it the trigger for sort of the empowerment and solidarity movements of the 1960s? And um, is it, to your mind, a kind of logical consequence of all that preceded in terms of the acts of exclusion uh, that you talked about, amplified by uh, empire and war, uh, as you noted? Yeah, I think it's actually both of those things. And I think you're right. I do think that there are ways, I, I mean, I would say that obviously that the resistance and the social movements that come out in the post-World War II period, um, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the ways in which I think that there is resistance and uh, efforts, you know, peppered throughout Asian American history that go back to the very, the very beginnings. Um, but I do think that there are ways in which in the post-World War II uh, period that we do see, um, you know, these social movements uh, gain a certain kind of, um, I don't know, traction um, in a way that we didn't see before that. Um, and I do think that, that, that it is uh, something that sparks that. Um, and so, and I would say even for Japanese Americans, um, and I know we were going to maybe, I know we we're going to try to, uh, I don't know of the ordering at this point, but, um, Clearly, the redress movement that takes place later, uh, that that ends in the you know Civil Liberties Act in the in the 80s, um, that has been a really key uh, factor, not just for Japanese Americans, but I think for how, for example, Japanese Americans were at the forefront in uh, speaking out after 9/11 um, and what happened in that situation. So these linkages that cut across time, I think, are really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and can you talk about an event that is often spoken of as um, a very um, 
powerful one in the history of Asian, Asian American experience in the United States, which is the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982. Yeah, that was a very, uh, I mean, I think it was a really important uh, case um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one, because I think that the social movement or the work for justice that came in the aftermath of Vincent Chin's murder was one that linked in some ways uh, the older Asian American uh, movement folks with post-1965 uh, immigration and some of the groups that were coming in there. And I would say that that was also true for the lesser known um, movement called Free Chelsea Lee Movement, which was about a person in San Francisco who was wrongfully accused of murder. And that was kind of a Pan-Asian um, you know, effort that actually drew both um, these older activists that were involved um, as well as kind of newer immigrants. And so, um, for example, American Citizens for Justice, that organization kind of emerges out of the Vincent Chin case in Detroit. Um, and on a personal note, um, I was involved uh, as a graduate student. I got pulled into an anti-Asian violence coalition in the late 80s and the early 90s, um, in which Vincent Chin's case played an important role. And it was actually a very eye-opening experience for me because as a you know relatively young person, um, I was part of a coalition of groups that included uh, groups like ACJ, American Citizens for Just Justice, but also the Asian uh, Pacific American Legal Center, uh, the Asian Law Caucus, and other community-based organizations that formed a coalition that essentially what we did was we went to different sites after there was um, uh, like in a situation of violence against Asians in the United States. And we would meet with community leaders and local officials to try to really push for, um, you know, uh, in some ways uh, there to be really attention based on what was going to be happening into those communities. And so um, it was not, a, it was not, I would, it was a really um, difficult group to be a part of because we would usually go in after something had happened. Uh, like for example, we went into Stockton in January of 1989, where there had been um, a person who shot into a elementary schoolyard that was uh, in an area that was largely Southeast Asian um, and killed five young children and wounded almost 30 other um, young children. And so we would go in and meet with these folks and it was really difficult work, but at the same time, I felt like the coalition building and the social movement aspect of it was really uh, important. Yeah, and I'm just curious as one chronicles, as you've done very skillfully, the long history of um, bias and, uh, uh, and racialization of, uh, of Asian Americans in the United States, um, whether there are acts of resistance um, that precede the 1960s and then the 80s in the, in the wake of the murder of Vincent Chin. Do one, does one see um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, in the first half of the 19th, 20th century, does one see acts of resistance against this, um, this racial exclusion, uh, against the racial hegemon? Um, and if so, what form does it take? What alliances um, uh, advance it if, if, if there are such? Um, yeah, there, there are actually uh, a fair number of examples, um, both from kind of the micro level. Um, and a lot of those involve, for example, um, test cases in the courts, uh, where the courts, you know, not that the courts are free from all that bias as well, but there is some, there is some extent to which 
Um, there are efforts to do that. And, um, and I think that, you know, test cases really probe some of those regulations. So some of like local ordinances that were set up by some cities are actually overturned uh, through like legal, through legal means. Um, there are also efforts, I think, um, like I was, I know we were, I was going to talk a little bit more about World War II and the camps, but even in there, there are ways in which, of course, uh, in addition, there is resistance in the camps. And some of those forms of resistance, which are better known now, you know, maybe deal with the draft or deal with um, other aspects of the, like the, you know, testing the constitutionality uh, of the incarceration. But um, there are also other, many other forms of what people have called everyday acts of resistance um, that I think are also important not to forget. And for example, I did an oral history interview with um, a person who was in the camps and he actually filmed a lot of footage of the camps themselves surreptitiously and, and those kind of things. And then those uh, silent films, because he didn't have sound, became part of efforts later to really document what happened in the camps and things like that. So there's a whole range. And so that, those are a few examples. And what, curious, what does the instance of the incarceration of Japanese Americans uh, during the Second World War, culminating in the Korematsu case, tell you about America, about the American legal and political order in particular? Huh, that's a tough question. Um, because I think it, it tells us many things, but um, I'm not sure it just tells us one thing. Um, but I do think that um, the thing that I take away from even those test cases um, are the efforts. I guess I want to focus more on the the um, the efforts of attorneys and community groups to really, uh, you know, fight those cases both during the war and after the war, and that leads in many ways into redress and to the hearings uh, that you know that provide uh, Japanese Americans sometimes for the first time to be able to speak publicly about what happened to them. And so I just feel like. Those are the things that I really like to focus on in terms of um, that um, kind of legacy of resistance. And, and so to me, that, that community effort and the social movements that are built out of that, which I think in some ways extend into the present, as I was mentioning, um, even to 9-11 and to other areas, um, I think are, are really important. Right. I, mean, I just want to double back to this. It, it's clear that um, those movements, um, the redress movement, the Japanese American redress movement has reached out and sort of sought to extend the lessons of uh, the uh, incarceration to other groups and has manifested solidarity with other groups in a very impressive way. Has that been reciprocated? Um, have allies outside of the Asian American community been responsive and effective partners um, in combating this particular form of um, um, American racial bias, Karen, do you want to you want to speak to that? Yeah. Uh, I I think uh, we're starting to see that more and more now. So, first in the form of statements issued by various groups, including the NAACP and other major uh, organizations, national organizations, as well as um, some of the local organizations. So that's always heartening. I think the important part that um, we all have to deal with next is what the solidarity mean in practice and in fighting kind of shared struggles. So 
even though um, Asian American uh, violence against Asian Americans is not new, uh, uh, but people are beginning to see it in, in the light of day now. And I think there are kind of commonalities that are being drawn between Asian American experience and other experiences of racial violence. So I look forward to a, a new period, a new era of solidarity building. Right. I mean, it's ironic that that new, but perhaps not surprising, that that new period of awareness comes in the wake of murderous violence um, embedded in a global pandemic, um, which became a precipitant for um, uh, a huge outflow of hate speech, um, a, a fair portion of which we can attribute to Donald Trump. Um, is that is that the right way to, to frame it or not? Yes, I think so. And, and I think it's already begun. I think under the Trump era, we saw a lot of solidarity being built between Southeast Asians and Latino organizations around the issue of deportation. Um, I think during the Muslim ban, we saw a lot of uh, solidarity between the Muslim community, which traverses all racial groups, and you know, racial and civil rights and human rights organizations. So one of the things that, you know, one of Trump's legacies is, is sparking at more activism and more acts of solidarity across many groups who became victim of many of his policies and his rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Right. So the flip side of, of the prejudice and, and hatred was the new activism. And indeed, in this country, the racial reckoning that followed the murder of George Floyd and uh, uh, other African-American women and men. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's a connection between that racial reckoning, Black Lives Matter, and uh, and sort of the, the state of affairs in the Asian-American community. I would like to think so. In my eyes, there it's, it's um, the common denominator is uh, kind of a tradition and uh, frame of mind uh, steeped in white supremacy. So I think that there is a common source of, of the, our, our collective problems, as well as the structural racism in which these acts of hatred and violence and um, spite and, and murder are, are based on. And I think the more we can see those commonalities, the the better and more effective will be. Uh, and that, but it brings me to, you know, concerns about what what direction we're going in right now, especially over the debate um, on whether or not the acts in uh, Atlanta were hate crimes or not hate crimes, and and all of that. Yeah, so let's jump into that. Um, as you've just suggested, there's been this um, discussion about whether racial hatred was uh, a main motive in the murders. And I'm wondering um, if you can unpack this uh, this uh, line of inquiry that has been uh, raised and and maybe also address the question of why Asian anti anti Asian American hatred or violence uh, can be so veiled. Right. Um... You know, there has been a lot of frustration uh, within the Asian American community when people are questioning whether or not it, this is a hate crime. But I think that we need to really separate and differentiate 
between um, an act of racial violence and the legal definition of a, of a hate crime. And an act of racial violence is violence enacted on a person or group of people whose race is a factor leading to their victimization. Whereas a hate crime is a criminal act um, defined by law in which bias, whether it's gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, religion, or other uh, descriptor can be proven to be a central motive. Uh, so racial violence, the idea of a racial violence of racial violence is based on the outcome, whereas a hate crime is based on proven intent. So in the case of the Atlanta shootings, an act of racial violence, um, I think was clear was clear for many of us. Uh, for all the reasons that people have um, alluded to so far. So the fact that Robert Long traveled specifically to three different Asian-owned massage parlors, uh, that six of the second eight victims were Asian women who appeared to be the target of his attack in his admission that he did this to quote-unquote eliminate his temptation. And the fact that we can't really separate this targeted killing from the fetishization, that's always a tongue twister, um, fetishization of Asian women and the history of US militarism that's become steeped in popular culture and that has fed into human trafficking and the sex industry itself. So I think by separating those two ideas, right, whether or not this is an act of racial violence or whether or not this is a hate crime, really helps us kind of disentangle ourselves from kind of these legal uh, rabbit holes that then lead to greater and greater frustration. And what has been the role of mainstream media in, uh, in stoking that frustration? Have they not gotten it right um, in, in the reporting and, and, and sort of follow-up? Yeah, I think there's been a little bit of a, an, of a narrow focus on the issue of whether or not it's been a hate, it's a hate crime or not, without really kind of stepping back and looking at, you know, what are the sources of racial violence and um, what can we do about it? And it didn't help that um, kind of the media spokesperson for the Cherokee County Sheriff uh, was very callous in his statements. Um, and I think that really, you know, triggered a lot of anger and, you know, trauma too. You know, not only did the shooting happen, but you have the spokesperson of the sheriff kind of making an excuse by saying, you know, he was pretty much fed up and he had been kind of at the end of his rope and yesterday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. I mean, it's, it's, um, it was just a, a sign um, of, uh, it was almost like uh, he was taking almost a position um, or a side uh, is what many people felt. And then when the sheriff captains racist social uh, media posts and sales of these racist t-shirts calling the pandemic a China virus came to light, I think it really, um, through the credibility of the sheriff's department into question. Right. I mean, in this case, it seems like you have a very <clears throat> toxic um, mix of strands, um, a deep um, anti-Asian, anti-Asian American um, bias or hatred, <clears throat> the sexualization of violence and misogyny seem to, um, in a certain sense, intersect 
at this tragically lethal moment. Exactly. You're exactly right. And and it's hard to read this event apart from the history of anti-Asian racism because so many characteristics of the event echo things that have happened in the past. And then we've seen such a dramatic rise in anti-Asian violence um, and all this, I, I don't want to review all the statistics, there are more than enough statistics to show how it's really escalated, particularly after Trump's use of the term China virus. I mean, even studies of the uh, social media and, and the Twitter sphere empirically show the rise in anti-Asian sentiment uh, on social media following uh, the repeated mention of uh, or repeated use of the term China virus, Kung flu, and other um, scapegoating terms. One of the things that I've heard um, in reading um, uh, about uh, Atlanta um, was um, the pushback against the uh, sensibility of Asian Americans as a model minority, uh, that discursive line. And I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, I think this goes back to what David was saying too about um, the utility of lumping everybody together as Asian American. I mean, it was a political, it rose out of a political movement. Um, it rose out of an anti-imperialist um, moment. Um, and it really spoke to the commonalities that at that point, you know, most of the Asian Americans were from working class backgrounds whose parents came or grandparents came as immigrant laborers. Um, and now we have a much more diverse population, you know, people coming after the 1965 Immigration Act. Many are um, professionals. Uh, many come with uh, assets uh, just by virtue of the law. And it's led to just a bifurcation, an economic bifurcation of the community. So you have some people that are very wealthy and some people that are very poor. And it's, um, and, and there's a big difference between immigrants and refugees, the people who came as refugees um, following the war in Southeast Asia. Uh, have a very different demographic profile, right, from the earlier immigrants. So there is, um, there is, but there's this stereotype that all Asians have made it, right? And as much as I enjoyed the movie um, Crazy Rich Asians, it in no way depicts the majority of Asian Americans in the U.S. Um, so, and and nor was it meant to, right? I mean, it's it's, it's a great film for entertainment purposes, um, but it's not a history, you know, it's not a his historical documentary. Um, so, but I think there's such, so few depictions of Asian Americans in the media, in, in American media, and there is very little inclusion of Asian American studies uh, scholarship within K through 12 and college educational curricula that we're still an unknown entity, right? We're, we're still an un, almost invisible population within the United States. Uh, we're slightly over, what, 6% of the U.S. population, but we're also the fastest growing um, racial group in the U.S. And then I think there's um, even more overlooked our Pacific Islanders. Uh, I think there's 
growing interest in indigenous population, you know, in, indigenous nations and populations in the U.S. and globally. And there's very little understanding of America's role in the uh, illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and, and conquest of, and uh, territorialization of Guam and American Samoa and uh, U.S. nuclear testing, you know, in Micronesia and many things that um, have had an impact on the migration patterns and the um, and our, the cultural fabric of, of our of our community, and I don't say migration. I mean migration from um, many of the COFA, you know, Compact of Free Association countries um, to the U.S. Uh, not, which is different from you know the territories and, and Hawaii. So, David, um, would you weigh in on this question of the sort of the model minority tag so often associated with uh, with Asian Americans? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, other scholars have talked about you know the yellow peril and the model minority being kind of the flip sides of, of a coin, right? And that it kind of, the pendulum swings one way or the other. But I think what really is at the base of it is that Asian Americans racially have largely been used as a wedge population. And I think to really, um, in some ways, take the focus off of white supremacy and really say, use, using the model minority as a way of saying to other groups, why can't you be more like them? when that in itself is really inaccurate. And I think part of what Karen was referring to was, I think the efforts at trying to disaggregate data uh, for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders has been really important because there is a way in which this composite term really masks or hides kind of the internal diversity under both those composite categories. So Asian American and Pacific Islander, right? So they're, they're both kind of terms that uh, cover a lot of different kinds of groups and experiences. And so I think that's that's uh, one way that I would uh, talk about that. Right. And I mean, you mentioned diversity. There's obviously tremendous um, internal diversity within uh, the broad category of Asian American and for that matter, Pacifica Islander. Um, there's also a measure of viewpoint or outlook diversity. Um, and I'm reminded of this when I reread uh, Andrew Yang's op-ed in The Washington Post from April 2020 in which he stated, we Asian Americans need to embrace and show our Americanness in ways we never have before, um, hinting at um, a kind of integrationist impulse as the necessary act in order to complete the American dream and forestall bias, prejudice, and violence. Um, and that motif of integration or an ethos of integrationism is obviously um, prominent in the experience of uh, many immigrant communities and uh, succeeding generations. And I'm wondering um, what we are to make of that statement and that integrationist impulse. Maybe we'll start with you, Karen. I mean, I totally understand it, but I think it's misguided. And I think it's a very defensive uh, reaction to the situation. I think we shouldn't need to prove our Americanness. We are who we are and we're American. And um, we need to be a little more proactive, I think, in stopping this shadow epidemic. And the acts that, you know, the, the direction we need to take is not so much to prove our Americanness, but to assert our American right, rights as Americans um, in this kind of heated and uh, consequential moment in history. 
I'm sorry, did you, I missed, there may be a term of art. Did you mention a shadow epidemic? Yeah, I call it a, the Asian, I, 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 refer, I refer to anti-Asian violence as a shadow epidemic. That's the shadow <laughs> epidemic. Right. In my mind, uh, it is. Yeah, um, very powerful point. Um, David, uh, thoughts about sort of that ethos of integrationism um, to which Andrew Yang gave expression um, and where we're at in sort of the cycle. It's interesting to me because in some ways that's exactly the same kind of thinking that some Japanese Americans had in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor and what happened in the camps that, uh, you know, I think that the narrative around um, the Japanese Americans in World War II focuses a lot on the, on the uh, veterans that served and that really were um, very sacrificial <clears throat> in their service during the war. And I don't want to take away from that the importance of that. But I think that what was driving a lot of that narrative uh, during the time and then in the post-war was really one around this patriotism that I think in some ways um, what Andrew Yang's statement does is it sells Americanness short um, in the sense that it, it's too limiting. And I think in a sense, um, I think what really is the best about what we are as Americans is really this ability to have that diversity of experience and and the, the ability to really um, critically assess what it means to be part of this country. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's uh, what I would, you know, that's, I mean, I didn't have a talk with him, but that's what I would probably would talk to him about. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it also does damage. I mean, my parents were in camp. And one of the things that I remember growing up um, is that my father's, is my father, um, and I having a discussion about why I don't have a Japanese middle name like my other siblings do. And he said that he didn't want to give me a Japanese middle name because he didn't want me to stand out as Japanese. He wanted me to blend in. So he anglicized my aunt's name. And that's why I, my middle name is Nora. And then I asked, why do my siblings have Japanese middle names? And he said, because I was scolded by, by your grandmother. <laughs> so... Um, but, you know, those kinds of things leave a mark even on future generations that we feel like we can't be proud of who we are. We can't, you know, show our, have, show cultural pride. We can't practice our language. We can't practice our traditions um, for fear of, of some kind of retaliation. And so I think it has long-term intergenerational um, uh, implications. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, David, as we move towards um, conclusion, um, what you think um, the history that you uh, chronicled um, can teach us about where we are at the current moment or where we might be going? Um, what does that sort of, the, what do the ebbs and flows of the story um, offer us uh, by way of lessons learned? Well, David, you know that we feel much more comfortable talking about the past than we do about the future. Much better predicting the past. <laughs> it doesn't seem to move around so fast, uh, as fast, right? Uh, but I guess what I would say for me is that, you know, it seems like the if when I look back at Asian American history, it seems that the push for racial justice is certainly a long road, but that that obviously involves a lot of struggle. But what provides hope for me, especially in this in these moments today, um, is that the building of social movements and how they change and adapt to the times that we're in. So clearly the social movements that are emerging today are not the same as the ones that emerged in the 1960s. 
um, or even in the 1980s or 90s. But hopefully there are ways in which they, are, they learn from each other um, as, as these things develop. And, and for me, it's always about the building of community. Um, and um, I'm really drawn to Dr. King's notion of beloved community. Um, and, you know, I know that for some uh, people, even some activists that might seem kind of antiquated, but it seems to me that, um, that this notion of the beloved community, it, it's about envisioning a different kind of future um, and one that is really born out of struggle and, and the hard work that it takes to build community. And I think not just for the United States, but really uh, in a much larger global context. And I think that that's kind of, um, for me, I hope that's what people can take some from Asian American history. Right. And Karen, you, if I heard you correctly, were cautiously optimistic about where we might go out of this uh, moment. Um, and I guess to uh, borrow another uh, famed expression of Dr. King, I'll pose this question. Do you believe that the arc of the moral universe is bending towards justice? A question we often ask on this podcast, or perhaps more modestly, whether new bonds of solidarity are emerging um, and indeed have been fortified out of this tragic episode in Atlanta that uh, might um, uh, augur or point towards a better future uh, for Asian Americans and others in the United States. I, I, I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't go into urban planning. Um, <laughs> so I, I would hope so. But I think we're at a pivotal moment right now because I think we could go down the um, pursuing the effort to pursue hate crimes legislation thinking of it as a silver bullet, or we could really expand the conversation to dig deeply into the meaning of structural racism and how we could end structural racism. And um, being a planner, I'm always trying to uh, make bold recommendations. <laughs> so if I could uh, point to a direction that I think is more hopeful, I would say that um, there are a couple areas that I think if we really um, moved on, we could make a difference. And one is in education. So I think if we integrate the histories, cultures, contributions, and struggles of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the U.S. in every public school in the country, so that this nation will know who we are, and uh, so we can put an end to the idea that Asians are the perpetual, perpetual foreigner, like David mentioned, then I think um, that's w one of the key uh, avenues to, to fight anti-Asian hate. Um, and I think in terms of um, addressing the underlying problems that create this tinderbox waiting for some trigger event to light fire to it, um, I think this means dealing with the widening divide between rich and poor that often manifests at the local level in the form of racial tensions um, I think we have to deal with the growing economic and housing insecurity that's worsened over under COVID-19 and raising the level of that's, you know, raised the level of societal pain and panic. And I think it's um, really dealing with this issue of uh, controlling the sales and use of firearms that are selling like hotcakes, especially in Asian communities. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot in planning is infrastructure. You know, we think about infrastructure in terms of roads and communication systems and 
uh, shipping lines and all of those things, but we, we don't really think about the idea of a human relations infrastructure. And I think if we've thought about infrastructure in that way, right, a new type of infrastructure that would really pay attention in, in an ongoing way, instead of this sporadic way, to the way in which different groups are getting along, are um, managing, you know, social issues and social problems that are um, ways in which people can have a more a fuller democratic voice, right, in society. There's so much money in politics, as we've seen in the last, um, you know, increasing over the last couple of decades that, you know, what, what does democracy mean if um, the NRA could just make a couple phone calls and go against 90% of the population um, in, um, in uh, swaying the vote on gun control in their favor, right? So I think there are these important structural problems that this issue of anti-Asian hate could really lift in the public imagination. And I think if we do that, then I would be much more hopeful. But, but if we get bogged down in, in uh, this debate over whether or not the Atlanta murder was a hate crime or not, then I'm not very uh, optimistic at all. Right, but it's interesting um, that you're um, connecting um, the particular and recent experience of Asian Americans to larger issues in American society, like uh, access to guns, is itself uh, attestation to the inextricability of the Asian American experience in the, the fabric of the United States, um, which seems like an appropriate point uh, to end on. Um, I want to thank my esteemed colleagues, Karen Umamoto and David Yu, for a most stimulating episode of Then and Now. Thanks so much for making time out of your busy schedules to address this topic of, uh, of extraordinary contemporary importance. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to our audience uh, for joining with us um, in this episode of Then and Now. If you have any comments or feedback, please email us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That is L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. And as always, special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Thank you all. Have a safe and healthy day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.